Welcome to In Their Voice, an audiobook club podcast from Chirp, dedicated to the most profound human stories, narrated by the people who live them. I'm Caleb Gotthart, an editor at Chirp Books, and I'm joined by my colleague and fellow editor, Meredith Peterson. Every month, we're picking an audiobook memoir that highlights a remarkable life, and discussing what spoke to us, what challenged us, and what inspired us. If you, like us, love to listen to stories from remarkable people, especially when we get to hear that story in their own voice, we'd love to have you join us for our book club. So here's how it works. First, visit chirpbooks.com slash in their voice, where you'll see a chance to follow our book club. If you click that follow button, you'll be signed up to receive monthly updates to learn what memoir Meredith and I are reading and why we're excited about it. All you have to do is listen along with us and stay tuned for a new podcast episode wherever you found us in the podcasting world, where we'll be having an in-depth discussion of our pick. This month, we're discussing Hollywood Park. Hollywood Park is the story of Mikel Jolet, a cult survivor, a track star, a rock star, a child of the universe. We start in Synanon, the initially respected and now forever tarnished drug rehabilitation center turned cult that once tried to kill a lawyer by putting a rattlesnake in his mailbox, where Mikel's mother is forced to sneak Mikel, age five, and his brother Tony out of the Synanon compound in the middle of the night, eventually arriving in Oregon, where Mikel spends the majority of his childhood with a narcissistic mother, temperamental older brother, a stream of complicated father figures, and a barn of rabbits in the backyard, providing their main source of food. After reconnecting with his father, Mikel begins to spend summers in LA with his dad and eventual stepmom Bonnie, both former Sinanites themselves. In LA, Mikel discovers his memoir's namesake, the horse track now occupied by SoFi Stadium, the host of the 2022 Super Bowl, Hollywood Park. At the races, Mikel learns what it means to be a Joe Lay boy, an outlaw, eventually leading him to live permanently in LA with his father, where he discovers a love of running and the possibility of a future not haunted by Synanon. Landing at Stanford, Mikel becomes a Pac-10 track star, yet pursues another passion after he graduates, music. After putting out an ad for bandmates, Mikel forms the now famous band, The Airborne Toxic Event. Here, in the crowd as he performs at Coachella, Mikel finds what he's been looking for, to stand on the other side of the bridge I imagined at 12 years old and know it was all real, those feelings that connect us like lost children. Hi, Meredith. It is so great to have you join me here for our first official book club meeting for In Their Voice. I'll start off with a question. How are you? Hi, Caleb. I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here doing this uh, book club with you. I thought it would be fun to have a little bit of a icebreaker to start our first book club meeting, as if this were a book club that was meeting in person. So I googled icebreakers for your first book club meeting. The one that stuck out to me and one that I think will help our listeners and fellow book clubbers get to know us a little bit better is the question, if there was a biopic being made of your life, who would you want to play you 
in that movie? Hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. And I feel like there's a lot of implications with an answer. Um, there certainly are. So, so definitely, yeah, this is maybe the most important question I've ever been asked, actually, now that I think about it more. But I think if we're going in terms of like people who like actors who look like you, Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a really tough avenue for me because I am constantly being told that I look like very bizarrely different celebrities who don't look anything like me. Um, Mm. For example, I've been told I look like Stevie Nicks and also I've been told I look like Dua Lipa. Um, who you might notice don't look anything alike. Um, And also, as you know from knowing what I look like, they look nothing like me. Um, (laughs) So 0 for 2. But in terms of vanity, um, one time somebody told me I look like a young Susan Sarandon, which, once again, not true, but I'll take it because she's gorgeous. Um, And also, Susan Sarandon really has the range. You know, I feel like she can do it all. Um, she can bring levity. She can bring drama. I mean, she's an icon. Um, and I feel like if she were playing me in a biopic, then that would sort of imply that I'm also an icon. Like she's not going to just take, Mm -hmm. she's not going to take any old role. Nope. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe Susan. It's a great answer. What about you? I'm going to go aspirational here and very aspirational. And that would be, Brad Pitt because wow, great choice. And not only are obviously the looks are there, um, the charisma is there, but I think he could make my life seem incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. Even if it was very mundane, the gravity that he could lend my life story would make me even think, wow, I did live a great life yeah. if I saw Brad Pitt doing it. Yeah. But let's let's get into this book a little bit. All right. So this month we're talking, we're discussing Hollywood Park by Mikhail Jolet. Part of what's so unique about this memoir is that Mikhail writes his early childhood from the perspective of a child. Mm-hmm. And as we get to know him, we're really in his at least best recreation of his self and his thoughts and his awareness of the world around him at that age. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on this? How did that come across as you were listening to it? I know we had talked about this briefly before, how that was almost a little disorienting for you the first time you read this book. Mm-hmm. I Spoiler alert, I guess. I had actually read this before I listened to the audio. And when I think I definitely had a different experience reading it um, in print versus listening to his narration. And I think that when I was reading it, I found the like child voice or whatever a little bit distracting. Um, And like it felt maybe a little bit affected to me. Um, I think it definitely worked better in audio for a number of reasons. But I also think that like I just had like more time to think about it and to like sit with it like on a second listen or second read. And I think that I kind of understand it more. I, I think I think it's probably like a better vehicle for capturing what he went through than just like telling us what he went through as an adult. Um, I think it's like it's it makes it easier to capture that kind of sense of 
just how they were really experiencing everything for the first time, you know, and like so naive right. to a lot of things and, and really just like learning about the world. I also think that it's maybe easier for him potentially to, you know, you get the sense throughout the book that he hasn't talked about a lot of this stuff very much. And I think he kind of has like a wall up emotionally uh, uh, around a lot of these different parts of his life. And I think it might have been, this is like blatant, like armchair psychology speculation, but I kind of mm-hmm. wonder if it was easier for him to like access those memories in that kind of child perspective to give it more distance, I guess. Like maybe that felt safer for him. I found this quote from, I think it was a publisher's weekly interview he did on the book when it came out. He says, writing this book gave that child a voice. I had mm-hmm. never acknowledged the neglect I'd suffered. And that comes through a little bit later or towards the end of the book in the section where he starts going to therapy and really working on a lot of the trauma and working through a lot of the trauma and emotional abuse that he had suffered, particularly coming out of Sinanon and then I think in his relationship primarily to his mother um, Mm -hmm. where a lot of that emotional and abuse and neglect was more present. But I, I, I agree. I think... Bringing in the childlike perspective to the story, I think, allowed us to uncover more of what it would have been like in that situation. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think it, like, honors, it honors those experiences more, maybe. Um, like, I think if if you told it from the adult perspective, you would probably be doing a lot more, like, psychoanalysis and, like you know, digging deep into, well, what was really going on as opposed to just like letting that like pure experience shine through. Right. And that's what he is as a kid. He is just the raw experiences. Yeah. Everything is new. He talks about the, when they leave Synanon for the first time, the highways are new, the roads are new, like homes, restaurants, none of that had been, had he experienced. And so I think we get to live that with him, which I think is really, really compelling. Anyway, we never used the word drug addict. We would just say someone was a dope fiend. People said this with pride, and I'm pretty sure that's what we are. And if someone were to ask us whether we're white or black or Dutch or Italian, I'm not really sure, but I know we're all dope fiends because that's all anyone ever talks about. Should we talk a little bit about Synanon then? I think it's like, this is the initial kind of like hook of the book that like a child who escapes a cult becomes a rock star and I and I was looking at some reviews of this book and I think some people were frustrated that it was like almost a little bit of a bait and switch they felt like where he's in a cult but pretty much you know within the first couple pages or a couple minutes of listening they're out of the cult yeah I think if you're expecting this to be a true crime story or you know a really like sensational tell all of what it's like to live in a cult this is not the book for you necessarily. Um, you know, he, I think he's only five when his mom essentially rescues him and his brother. And so his memories are of it are fragmented and there's a lot he doesn't really understand or doesn't come to learn until much later into his adulthood. But it's definitely still, you know, a, a presence, right? You know, he talks a lot yeah. about him and his brother, him and his other family members being survivors of some sort of wreckage. Yep. And it, it sort of is this 
to him, I think he feels like it is this sort of defining element of his life is is that he spent the first five years of it, it in this place. Like you said, we don't get a lot of the like expose tell all of what it was like to grow up in a cult, but at the same time, it's impossible not to read the rest of Mikhail's life as in the shadow of Synanon. But what's interesting, so just to do a little bit of a like Synanon history, I did some research, Meredith, on Synanon. I'm glad. There's some, it's, it's a pretty wild story for a couple of reasons. One is that I don't know how common this is in the world of cults, but started out as a good thing. It was actually first called the Tender Loving Care Club, which kind of sounds like a Care Bears episode. And maybe it was a Care Bears episode at one point. Who are we to say? Initially, a lot of the inspiration for Care Bears came, came from Synanon. <laughs> okay, so we've mentioned his name, Charles Diedrich. Chuck is the, the founder of this. He was formerly, I believe, addicted to narcotics of some sort and had been through AA, but really wanted a, a similar type of program for drug dependence. And while uh, NA or Narcotics Anonymous was like formed around the same time, it wasn't as prominent as AA. So he wanted to create this like drug rehabilitation center, but at the core of it, he also wanted to like change the world. Like he wanted to create an experimental society. Ultimately, that's where it kind of all was heading for him. He's quoted as saying, this is a total revolution game, <laughs> is mm-hmm. what he says. And so he's famous for starting the phrase, today is the first day of the rest of your life. So kind of this rehabilitation, like mm-hmm. you can start fresh mentality. And I think where it started to go wrong, because, you know, before a certain point, it was like actually well-respected people from like, Jane Fonda to Leonard Nimoy to Ray Bradbury and the original host of The Tonight Show, Steve Allen, had all visited Synanon and praised it. Star Wars features extras from Synanon because everyone was required to shave their heads as part of being a part of Synanon. And so George Lucas needed some extras and he found them at Synanon because everyone had a uniform look. But really, and I think this is my theory as to where it started to go wrong, is something that Mikkel talks about, which is the game. Mm-hmm. And the game is a kind of group therapy that Diedrich invented where people sit in a circle and they shout their frustrations at each other. And, and a kicker of this is that your frustrations don't even need to be true. So you can just like lie to someone and yell at them for any mm-hmm. reason. In fact, it's one of the strategies. And these games could last up to 48 hours of wow. just sitting in a room yelling at each other. Um, some sample prompts that you could talk about were the most boring person in this circle is uh <laughs> what really pissed you off most this week and so in this article i was reading about it which we'll link to um in the show notes it seemed like this is where it turned from group therapy to sort of a kind of a mind control and like everyone getting on chuck's page mm-hmm. the game was sort of this very manipulative tool that allowed him to kind of control the ethos and, and environment of synodon it kind of sounds like if he could have just channeled this like revolutionary mindset more into like reality TV, he really could have had something. Because just yeah. like being trapped in a room with people and just yelling at them nonstop does sound like most of the reality TV that I watch. <laughs> that 
That is a great point. Um, and I think it's something we should probably re-explore, putting, putting the game, ca- just calling point. it the game. Yeah. We could just call it that, yeah. yeah. I mean, hopefully like wouldn't evolve into a cult. Um, but I mean, if it did, we could be cult leaders. I think so. I think we have the charisma. There's yeah. a great line from The Office where Creed talks ab- about cults. He's like, I've been in several cults several times as a leader, several times as a follower. And he's like, I think he says, like, you have more fun as a leader. No, you have more fun as a follower, but make more money as a leader or something mm-hmm. like that. Okay, so the last sort of breaking point of Synanon, that, and this is kind of where Mikkel's life intersects with the history of Synanon, is that Chuck's wife dies of lung cancer in the late 70s. And it seems like his wife, Betty, was able to hone in or like dial back some of Chuck's you know, more wild ideas. His policies become more extreme and controlling. He declares that married Sennonites should split up and find new partners, which is something that happens to Mikkel's parents. He even broke, broke up his own daughter's marriage. And 600 couples were divorced the following year from Sennonon after this wow. sort of like declaration from, from Chuck. And this is also the breaking point for Mikkel's mother. And she's like, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, I need to get out of this. And that's where we really start in Hollywood Park, which is like, it's not safe here. This cult has become unhinged um, and they flee. There's a trial for mom's investigation and that's when the tapes come out. The tapes of the old man saying crazy things. He wants legs broken and ears cut off and put into jars. He wants a revolution. Meredith, in reading this book, what what are some moments that are going to stick with you? Yeah. You know, obviously this book is, you know, a really close personal look at cycles of abuse and neglect and the way that trauma sort of passed down and like reveals itself in surprising places maybe, but it's also, you know, very much about addiction. And I think the perspective there is more opaque. Um, I was really kind of fascinated by, I guess how Mikkel feels addiction like has or hasn't affected him, you know, like where does Mm. that live in his understanding of like the landscape of his adolescence and his adult life? I think we don't really know for sure. And I spent a lot of time trying to like untangle that. He's constantly hearing from his mom, kind of his mom is just constantly droning on and on about addiction and how addiction is a family disease and it's a family disease and it's a family disease. And he's just sort of like, inundated from like a very young age like probably like much too young to really even understand what she's talking about whatsoever that like this is what's in his family history and it does impact him you know he spends time at like AA retreats essentially Mm -hmm. listening to people talk about their stories you know his father obviously has his his past it's sort of unclear to me you know just sort of how this all makes him feel other than just like, you know, the general sort of sadness of seeing people struggle with it. Um, when he does see that Mikel is like 13 or something before his dad ever has like a serious conversation with him about his incarceration and about his addiction issues. And, you know, he like sits him down and he's like, I didn't want to get locked up. Like we tell funny stories, like, but it it was it was terrible you know it's it's mm-hmm. being <laughs> suffering from addiction is not fun you know i think his his father and his father's like family they kind of like to not romanticize but you know it's sort of like oh that was just sort of a, a chapter of our past that was kind of 
larger than life or whatever, but he's sort of like, you know, that's not actually true. Like it's, it wasn't good. And like, I wish that someone had talked to me about this when I was your age. And it's this really big moment. Like it's this huge kind of like momentous, almost confession. And I think he uses language. Like he feels like the earth was standing still. You see him with like the old timers at AA retreats who are like telling these stories. And Mikel like seems to like really, he kind of enjoys hearing them talk, but not in a way like he sort of like likes the cadence of their voice. He likes like their, you know, he's kind of internalizing everything they're saying as sort of like zany adventures. Um, Similarly to how he like sees his dad. I think at one point he like compares his dad to the sort of like swashbuckling hero figure. And I think, you know, it's understandable why you would maybe get to a place in recovery where you'd want to frame those things as like merely funny, like funny little things that happened to like a different version (laughs) of myself rather than like what they probably were and felt like at the time. But I think it gives him kind of a skewed version of addiction and is like a kind of like a counter narrative to what his mom is always telling him. And like, I think especially because you're getting that child perspective, you're not hearing what he thinks about it now. And I'm sort of like, where, I don't know, like, how do you feel about your dad and your dad's struggles? And like, how did that affect you like were you scared of addiction like did you think that was going to happen to you like it doesn't seem like he's like particularly careful around drugs and alcohol like and obviously like that's lots of children of of people with addiction issues like are not but I don't know it's just like sort of like we don't really get that perspective from him that I was wanting yeah I think of even the motorcycle accident when Mm -hmm. he's his friend's He's, I think he's a teenager at this point. He ditches school to go hang out with, ride motorcycles with one of his best friends. And around this time, a lot of the people he's been hanging out with have been experimenting with all sorts of drugs, are drinking a fair amount. And his friend is high while he's on a motorcycle. And they essentially, in order to avoid a head-on collision, Mikkel is like thrown into a, a brick wall mm-hmm. and ends up in the hospital. And like, if he hadn't been wearing a helmet, the doctor says he would have died. And it's like this constant presence, substance abuse, really just marks almost everything he does or happens to him. The memoir is the upshot of the memoir is not like, now don't do drugs or like, right, don't, right. you know, it's like that's not at all the message. But it's hard to ignore that when, you know, almost like the origin story of this family and of Mikkel right. is a drug rehabilitation clinic that right. had seemingly good intentions that turns into a cult. Yeah, the motorcycle, the the accident is that you mentioned is I think, uh, it's kind of a turning point for him. I think that's sort of when his dad has the talk with him, and I think he gets more serious about school and about sports after that. And obviously, this book made me very sad. You know, you have a child who's really starving for affection and care and stability and whose life is in the hands of someone he can't trust or really even understand. Um, and some parts of his life were singular and kind of extraordinary, you know, escaping from a cult, but others weren't, which is, you know, even sadder. Like there are a lot of childhoods like this one and a lot of parents who harm their children and a lot of people whose lives are really molded by drugs and alcohol and, like it, it kind of feels like it's really down to luck that he turned out the way he did. I mean, he could have gone down so many different paths and his story could have ended in so many different ways. And, you know, I think not that he's not talented and, you know, it's obviously he's a very smart, talented kid, but the, the 
the deck was stacked against him and he sort of managed to succeed but like i kind of wonder like if he hadn't gone in that accident like what would have happened it seemed to be a wake-up call yeah for sure what could have happened to him if his dad didn't decide to like have that heart to heart with him felt like a shadow sort of like looming over the book for me yeah you don't get to the end of this book and think well obviously mikhail succeeded luck fortune providence whatever you want to call it seems to intervene at key moments in his life that where mm-hmm. the alternative was either um addiction death <laughs> like, yeah honestly yeah a story that we don't ever hear about then and part of the reason this book has a, a platform is because mikhail is a somewhat famous figure for being the lead singer of a somewhat famous rock band and the the book isn't really a memoir of their their journey so to mm-hmm. speak and really only touches on it at the end but it, i think it's almost easy to gloss over the fact that it's quite remarkable that this person is living the life that he is right now mm-hmm. when it could have gone so many different directions I tell him about the nights we destroyed property in the neighborhood, about flesh and duck and the time I almost OD'd, when the world was spinning and I was three inches tall in my head. He nods and says, let's just say it's good you got it out of your system early. There's no judgment, just a warm feeling like he's on my side. Another part of this audiobook experience, which is unique, is that Mikkel released it alongside an album called Hollywood Park. I listened to it. It's a great album. I hadn't really heard Airborne Toxic Event before as a band, but really enjoyed it. Mikkel's voice reminds me of, I'm blanking on his name now, but the lead singer of The National. Mm, Yeah, for sure. And very, you know, after listening to the story of his life, I think, you know, someone's musical voice takes on a whole different like you can hear some of the pain, I feel like, and longing and desires in his voice in Hollywood Park. So I would definitely recommend if you listen to the audiobook, definitely check out Hollywood Park as, a, as I think, a companion piece to, mm-hmm. to the story. Even if you haven't heard the band before, I think it's, it's really enjoyable. What was a little almost surprising to me is like you don't listening to the book you don't prophesy you wouldn't be like oh Mikel's obviously going to become a musician like yeah. you know he always had a piano right. or always was by the drum set like I felt he, the same way listening to him write he clearly has a poetic voice and has a remarkable ability to i think communicate his thoughts and perspective on paper obviously spent some time as a music journalist and you know getting to interview some of his heroes like david bowie and you know at one point before he starts the band is going to write a novel Mm-hmm. But I almost felt like that was out of left field for me. His father isn't a musician. His brother isn't a musician. His mm-hmm. mother's not a musician. Synanon was not originally a music cult. Like there was mm-hmm. no music <laughs> <laughs> music outside of how it gave him, you know, listening to David Bowie or listening to The Cure or The Smiths. Like music gave him a catharsis of sorts growing up. Mm-hmm. It, like, it felt like someone who understood the angst that he was going through, but it wasn't like, well, it seemed obvious when he picked up a guitar. So I thought right. that was also kind of a remarkable turn in life to be like, yeah, no, of course, he picked up a guitar and right. started writing some songs, and it, it all worked out. Like, that's not the common musician's journey, at least as I know it. Yeah, I, I felt very similarly. And, you know, he talks about music, obviously, but it's more like kind of like little interludes, you know, where he's being introduced to these bands and, and connecting with them on like a really emotional level. But you're right. It's not a, it's not a through line. 
to me at all. And, you know, reading the book, it's sort of like, oh, well, maybe he's going to become a track star. I mean, I think he's just, he's just good at a lot of different stuff. (laughs) Um, That's how I kind of felt. Like he could have done a lot of different things. Um, And this is like what he chose to do or where his life kind of took him. But um, yeah, I think that you're right. You can, you, you can tell he's a lyricist, you know, like his writing uses so much like imagery and metaphor. It's, there's a lot of these like evocative brief lines with a lot of heft. Um, and I think thinking about thinking about this book as maybe him working through his feelings about his father's death and like working through his grief, he starts the band at around the same time that he starts sort of like working on his emotional life and like Mm -hmm. his, his mental health and is like starting to kind of seriously grapple with what happened to him and how it's affected him. And I think it's around the time that he like learns that he like has an attachment disorder potentially. And like, you know, he, he can't maintain like romantic relationships and he like wants to know more and, you know, his therapist thinks it has a lot to do with his childhood. And even if it wasn't always obvious that music was going to be the path that he went down or the thing that he chose to do with his life, it makes sense. It came along for him at a time when he needed it really kind of similarly to like, he started appreciating music at a time when he needed it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like he needed an escape and that was, that was an escape for him when he was in Oregon and had, no one really and I think the band comes around at a time when he needs to like have these moments of catharsis you know and he needs to like work through his feelings and his experiences and I think that like songwriting probably is similar once again like speculating a little bit although he does talk a bit about this in the book but like songwriting was probably like pretty therapeutic for him in the same way that writing this book potentially was yeah, he he talks in a letter I think from the band when they were like announcing the release of like both the companion album and and the memoir was he says something about doing all of that putting all of this into one place I think referencing the book and the album became like magic a way of talking to that little boy making him feel less alone in this confusing world where he grew up mm-hmm. because what he didn't know is that all of you were on the other side of that conversation he was beginning to have that glimpse of the beautiful faraway world he saw the first time he ever opened a book. And I think my last question to you is going to be, what are you taking away from this book? And I think I'll still definitely ask that. But for me, what I'm taking away is there were these moments when he described coming on stage kind of in the early performances of the Airborne Toxic event and this unity he felt with the crowd that he could almost sense their pain and this moment that we were all just here together holding each other in that space. And and I feel like that's what comes out is like being on the other side of that conversation. You know, you kind of feel this connection to Mikkel at the end. That's like the core of the human experiences in those moments and in those recognitions and that it doesn't have to be so insular and isolating and that, you know, it may not always be possible, but when you can to lean into those conversations and those moments with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I had a couple... I think a couple takeaways and one I kind of touched on a little bit already, but just that sort of that sense that there are 
so many childhoods that look like this in some way, shape, or form, and that there's not necessarily any, like, clear means of intervention, Um, and just how how precarious his situation was, you know. A lot of components of his story are really, really sad. You know, zooming out a little bit, he's kind of a piece in this, like, larger puzzle of, like, parental abuse and parental neglect, and his kind of fate wasn't really in his own hands in a lot of ways. Um, And I think he, he, like, did the best he could, and I think he, like I said, I think he's a really smart and talented person, but there was just so much precarity, and I think his story could have, you know, had a different ending, which is really hard to grapple with, you know, and really tough to think about. But then, you know, on a slightly more positive note, I, I felt myself feeling really grateful for you know, his vulnerability. Um, you kind of catch glimpses like throughout the book of how, you know, how private he kind of is about his childhood um, in terms of both sitting on in his family life. And, you know, he has kind of a lot of walls, emotional walls around himself. And I get the sense, or maybe I just hope that writing this was in some way helpful to him, maybe like exercise some grief and anger. But in any case, I think he's given us something that he resisted for a really long time, and I think that takes a lot of courage. Thanks so much for listening to In Their Voice. If you enjoyed this conversation, follow our book club at chirpbooks.com slash in their voice, where we'll be posting new book club picks and conversations every month. And if you want to learn more about Chirp Book Clubs, go to chirpbooks.com slash book clubs. 